1: This is a CBC Podcast.
2: Honestly, summer is a time of fear and anxiety at this point. Other people talk about the things they're excited for summer. They talk about going swimming, going to the beach, you know, getting outside and going traveling. And I think about who in my community is going to die.
0: wow. That is an absolutely sobering thought, Bethany. Who is that?
3: Yeah, that's Q Lawrence. They live in Chilliwack, which is just east of Vancouver in BC's Fraser Valley. And as you can hear, summer has taken on a completely different meaning for them in the two years since the 2021 heat dome.
0: And I think a lot of us here in in British Columbia can can really understand that worry. You know, we're about to face potentially another hot summer.
3: But before we go any further, Bethany, we should... uh, well, let, let listeners know who you are. Yes, of course. Hi, I'm Bethany Lindsay. I'm a reporter with CBC's Health Unit, and I'm based here in Vancouver.
0: And I'm Renee Filiponi, sitting in for Laura Lynch this week. This is What on Earth, where we bring you a world of climate solutions. And this week, we're marking the second anniversary of the heat dome that hit the West Coast in 2021, leading to 619 heat-related deaths, We're talking about what we've learned since that time and hearing about how to protect vulnerable people as our world warms. So, Bethany, you have been working on a story about some new research showing that the number one risk factor for death in the heat dome was poverty. And before we get to that, though, what what do you remember about covering that heat dome?
3: Yeah, it it was a really scary time, both personally and professionally. So, if you remember, this was smack dab in the middle of COVID. So, like a lot of people, I was still working from home and we didn't have air conditioning at the time, which most people don't. Yeah, exactly. Like something like only a third of people living in BC had air conditioners at that time. We just are not used to hot weather. So, I was very much experiencing this as well as reporting on it. You know, my husband and I, we had one fan and that wasn't enough to cool two people working in a very hot apartment at the same time. Just moving the hot air around,
0: right? Yeah, exactly.
3: (laughs) We ended up shelling out $250 for the very last fan at our local home hardware. And you know what? It didn't even work very well. And, you know, I was putting towels in our freezer so I could put them on our cats to cool them off because they were just having an awful time. Temperatures here in Vancouver stayed in the mid-30s for days on end, but I was reporting on places like Lytton, which recorded the highest temperatures we've ever seen anywhere in Canada for three straight days. They hit 49.6 degrees on June 29th, that's hotter than it's ever been in Las Vegas. And then next day, of course, the town was virtually destroyed by a wildfire. You know, just another grim climate anniversary that we're marking here in BC. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this this hot weather was completely unprecedented for BC. It's been described as something that happens once every 1000 years, maybe.
0: And that voice we heard off the top there, that was Q Lawrence. What did they describe the heat dome in their experience? What was it like for them?
3: Yeah, so Q's 26 and they live in a very small rental home with a roommate. They're disabled. They have problems with their lungs and their skin. Plus, they need dialysis three times a week. And they get by on disability assistance from the government. So that's less than $1,400 a month. So at the time of the heat dome, they, of course, couldn't afford air conditioning. Or $250 fans. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, And, you know, it was a lot hotter in Chilliwack than it was here in Vancouver. It stayed at more than 40 degrees for at least two days in a row. At the same time, if you remember, there was wildfire smoke in the air. And as I said, Q had lung problems, so they didn't feel safe opening the windows or going outside. So they had to make do with some sheets over the windows and a couple of fans. I think our house got up to around 28,
2: 30 degrees um, and... Yeah, I mean, honestly felt quite trapped for for much of that time. Um, There was a lot of time sleeping on the kitchen floor um, because it was often the coolest room in the house. And the house would just build in temperature throughout the day. And then at night, there wouldn't even be a subtle drop. It would just kind of stay the same temperature. And then the next day it would start to build again. I personally knew three people who died. I was closer to one person specifically who died out here and you know they're very much a classic example of someone who fell through all of the cracks and was completely unsupported and unable to access any kind of cooling mitigation due to being disabled and poor and underhoused.
0: That fear and anxiety when you hear that that just makes total sense.
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I can't imagine how much hotter it must have been. And then when you've got ongoing disabilities and health conditions, you know, Q told me that the heat made their lung condition worse. It made their skin condition worse. And they still haven't really bounced back from that. Those are lasting effects. So,
0: you know, I mentioned some new research about those heat dome deaths. Can you tell me a bit more
3: about that? Yeah, so this is unpublished research, I should make that clear. But the BC Center for Disease Control says what it shows is important enough that it needs to be made public now. So over the last two years, a team of researchers has been tracking who died during the heat dome and what chronic health conditions they had that may have contributed to those deaths. Recently, they decided to add poverty into the mix. And what they found is that of those people who died during the heat dome, they were more than two times more likely to be on government assistance than a comparable sample of people who survived the heat dome. In layman's terms, what this means is that poverty was the biggest risk factor for death, more than any chronic health condition they've looked at so far. So I asked a researcher named Sarah Henderson why poverty played such a big role in these deaths. Sarah is the BC CDC's Scientific Director of Environmental Health Services.
4: First of all, we know that people who live in poverty are more likely to be disabled, more likely to have other chronic health conditions that affect their day-to-day wellness. And the more your day-to-day wellness is compromised, the more susceptible you're going to be to the heat. Second, you know, we're talking people who are likely living in substandard housing and housing over which they may not have much control, meaning that they may not be able to implement the types of interventions that might be protective. And then third, you know, just not having the means available to take those protective measures. So, You know, I get really hot in my house. I'm going to go out and buy an air conditioner. I'm going to have central air conditioning installed in my house. Those options are available to me because of my income and all of these other pieces. We have to be very clear that those options are not available to a very large segment of the population.
0: And when it comes to these heat domes and these really high heat events, you know, that fear, that anxiety we've heard about, what does Sarah think about that?
3: Yeah, so her situation is a lot more secure than Q's. You know, she has money and a good job, but she still dreads this time of year.
4: I'm scared of summer. And I'm, I'm not scared for myself. I am a well-educated white person who makes a good salary. I'm going to be fine. But I'm scared of summer. I mean, I, I deal with wildfires. I deal with extreme heat. And they describe this as a one in 1,000 year event. I don't buy that. I will not be surprised if we see another temperature anomaly like this within the next decade.
0: I mean, anytime you talk to anyone in your life, I don't know if it's the same for you, that comes up. We're going into summer and people are wondering, they're worried, like, how hot is it going to get this year?
3: Yeah. How hot is it going to get? How smoky is exactly. it going to get? Are we going to have enough water? It's just it's what summer means now. Mm-hmm. Uh, what What are the researchers then proposing as a solution? Yeah, I'm hearing kind of a lot of the same messages from researchers like Sarah Henderson and from advocates like Q What they want to see is standards across the country for maximum allowable temperatures inside a home. You know, as Canadians, we all understand that it isn't safe to let temperatures drop too low inside. You know, people die from the cold and the standard threshold for temperature inside the home is no lower than 18 degrees. Henderson says that at the same time, it shouldn't be allowed to get any hotter than about 26 degrees. I've also heard from some advocates who would like to see the maximum temperature set at something more like 23 degrees. And there have also been a lot of calls to provide air conditioners for low-income and disabled people so their homes don't go above that maximum threshold. Some advocates are calling for air conditioners to be permanently covered as medical devices through disability and income assistance programs. And Sarah Henderson told me she thinks that's an excellent idea.
0: And we are hearing about more air conditioner programs from various levels of government. What's happening?
3: Yeah. So the city of Toronto actually already has a program that pays for air conditioners for low income people if they have certain medical conditions. And, you know, this heat dump also affected Washington and Oregon states, and they've already rolled out more than 23,000 units through similar programs. That's a lot. Yeah, it is a lot. And, you know, two years after that, we've heard recently that the BC government is starting to take some steps in that direction. They've promised funding for about 8,000 units for low-income people over the next three years. And the province says that if you include air conditioners that are coming through a number of other programs through BC Hydro, it'll be more like... 10,000 new units altogether. But again, this is
0: two years after this deadly heat dome. So what are people saying about this BC government
3: initiative? Yeah, exactly. Two years after the heat dome, and it's coming out over the next three years. So some people who get these air conditioners aren't going to get them until five years after the heat dome. And, you know, I spoke to a Vancouver doctor who's been essentially trying to write prescriptions for air conditioning for her most vulnerable patients. Her name is Dr. Karina Zeidler. She heard this announcement and she said, it's a start, but it's also, and I'm quoting here, grossly inadequate. We're talking 10,000 air conditioners. Government numbers show that there are 382,000 people living in poverty in B.C. Dr. Zeidler says we need a permanent ongoing program to help those people survive the extreme heat that we know is coming. The bottom line is that With global warming happening, we're going to be seeing more and more of these extreme heat events. You know, at this point, it's not even a question of, okay, is it going to happen again? But when is it going to happen? Uh, And we need government to step in. We need government to spend some money. We need new regulations for our building standards uh, so that everybody can expect to be able to be safe in their home from extreme heat.
0: So a lot of talk about air conditioning, which is really, you know, a a great way for keeping buildings and people cold in in the short term. But overall, it is a net contributor to climate change. The U.S. government's National Renewable Energy Lab found that air conditioning accounts for about 4% of all global CO2 emissions. So if we install more air conditioners, are we not making the problem worse in the long run?
3: Yeah, it's a really good question. And we have heard from some climate consultants who are calling for heat bumps rather than air conditioners. But I think it's worth pointing out here that we're talking about a life and death situation for people who don't have a lot of resources to help them survive. And, you know, these are not people who are flying around the world on private jets or or profiting from fossil fuels. In general, the poorest people are not big contributors to climate change. You know, after the heat don't happened, I went out and bought an air conditioner. So did I. Yeah. And I never thought I'd do it. I never thought I'd need to. And I have one in my house now. Yeah. I argued with my husband because I thought (laughs) we'd never use it again, but we use it all the time. But you and I, we were able to do this because we have money. And people like Hugh Lawrence want to know why we should have access to that option. And poor people don't. There's
2: the idea that air conditioning units are bad for the environment. And to that I say disabled people's lives are not on the chopping block. There are other bigger things that we can do to support environmental action that don't kill oppressed and marginalized people.
3: And I guess that's kind of the crux of this story, right? Like it's an it's an example of how marginalized people bear the brunt of the climate crisis all over the world, all over everywhere. And they're feeling it more than anybody who has money or the power to change things. And, you know, I spoke to another researcher, Joan Casey, who works in the School of Public Health at the University of Washington. She's been studying the impacts of the heat dome as well. And she told me the BC research connecting poverty to a higher risk of dying is absolutely bang on.
5: It highlights uh, something that I think is very true about climate change, that it's going to really exacerbate existing health disparities and that we really need to buckle down and start to take this seriously because we're going to more than ever start to see this kind of widening of who can stay healthy and who gets very sick or dies unless we as a society take some steps to do something about it.
3: So essentially, researchers have identified this major problem with how extreme heat affects people, and that's poverty. And we're hearing some solutions that are coming down the pipes like air conditioning. But it's clear much more is needed to protect vulnerable people in Canada and everywhere as the world warms. Bethany, thank you so much for bringing us this story. Thanks for having me on, Renee.
0: We have time now for a few more climate stories in the news. Canada's worst wildfire season in modern history has passed another grim milestone, this time for carbon emissions. A European air monitoring group says Canadian fires have released a record 160 million tons of carbon, which is equivalent to Indonesia's annual carbon dioxide emissions from burning fossil fuels.
6: This extreme weather is unprecedented.
0: Canada's National Climate Change Adaptation Plan now has the support of all the provinces and territories. Environment Minister Stephen Guibault presented the final document in Vancouver. I think we all recognize that Canada's not ready to face the impacts of climate change, and that strategy is our response to that. The plan directs all levels of government to prepare for more extreme heat, drought and natural disasters. The price tag? $2 billion over five years. The final draft was released in the fall, and if you want to hear more about the details in that, you can listen back to our What on Earth episode from November. Just Google Canada's Climate Down Payment and CBC to find it. And one of Canada's most popular hiking trails has partially reopened after severe damage during flooding two years ago. Rapidly melting snow during the heat dome wiped out large parts of the Berg Lake Trail, which takes people through Mount Robson Park in B.C., The hike winds along the gushing Robson River to the azure blue Kinney Lake. The repairs were done so the trail could better withstand future climate crises and includes rebuilding broken bridges, reinforcing riverbanks, and elevating or rerouting vulnerable sections. Up next, another Climate Hero nomination.
7: There's not many Louise Camo's in this world, and you go to these different United Nations meetings, and uh, you know you're there with the world, and she's still above the rest, and just the way she pulls the people together, and the way you know all these different countries are negotiating, and she's able to stay on top of it all, and it's just like, oh my God, how does that brain work? And the energy, and then I don't know. There's uh, on the Saturday night, there's the uh, what do they call it? The, the big party at the end, Louise.
8: That's the NGO party. The
7: NGO party. So it's, like, famous at all these cop meetings. And uh, Louise will shut the place down. So not only is she, like, doing this marathon of meetings, she'll dance the place, you know, until it's uh, shut down. So it's just, I do not know where this woman gets her energy.
0: That's what on earth, listener Paul Gregory. And you heard his climate hero nominee, Louise Comeau, there as well. And Paul's nomination isn't just about Louise's dancing skills, it's for her impressive career of climate advocacy. She took part in international climate negotiations, including the Kyoto Protocol, the first global treaty to set legal targets for greenhouse gas emissions. She's worked with the Sierra Club of Canada, Climate Action Network, and the New Brunswick Conservation Council. And, above all else, Paul, who now works with Nature Canada, wants to recognize Louise's mentorship over their three decades of friendship. And
7: it's Louise's birthday today.
0: No way! (laughs) Happy birthday, Louise. Well, what a great day for the two of you to be coming together. Yeah, it's lovely. After what, how many years have you known each other now? Since 1993,
8: I was counting the other day, Paul.
7: Was it 93? I thought it was 96, 97, because it's Kyoto.
8: In there, the mid-90s, let's call it that. <laughs> <laughs> time can pass so quickly and so slowly all at the same time, can't it? Well, it's just there was an awful lot going on, and we've packed a lot more into our brain since. Uh,
0: Louise, how does it feel to have your friend and, and your mentee, Paul, put you forward for this, this climate hero role?
8: Well, obviously
0: it's lovely, but it also,
8: because of the conversations we've had around it, reminded me just how important the entire climate community is and just how important our friendships have been and um, that you decided to focus on um, our story as much
0: as the climate issue, I thought was really the best part of the whole thing. As you mentioned, you first met in the 90s. Paul was just out of high school. So Louise, do you remember what your first impression of him was? Oh, my.
7: (laughs) (laughs) Be gentle. Um,
8: Let's call it a diamond in the rough for sure. (laughs) Um, I was um, part of an ongoing um, engagement, let's put it that way, with energy and environment ministers that had to meet um, to negotiate Canada's position around uh, Kyoto and uh, what kind of climate plan we would have in Canada. And they had a meeting in Regina and... um, Elizabeth May uh, was part of our lives and um, said to Paul, you've got to go when you're on this train tour talking to high school kids about climate change. You need to find Louise and follow her around for a day. And we've been kind of together ever
0: since. You both traveled sort of in, in those early days. You talk about Japan, the Kyoto Protocol. And Louise and Paul, I, I have heard stories as well uh, that, that in the early days there there was a lot of sleeping on the floors, couches, <laughs> you know, what was that like? Because I know people may see, you know, most they'd expect people traveling to do these sorts of things, being in fancy hotels, but you guys not, were right there.
8: Not at all. <laughs> um, it was a very long time uh, before Canadian foundations put any dollars into um Nonprofits work on climate change. Um, and so uh, we were poor, like really poor in our work. We made very little money. We had no expense money, that's for darn sure. And so, you know, we all stayed at each other's homes when we had to travel. And, um, you know, that meant sometimes you were um, staying in a little bit of a crowded spot, but it added to the camaraderie, really, and to the community and the um, the fun times, you know, when you have at least that support network in terms of this, the subjects, especially when you know, you're working every day um, on power structures that are almost impossible to move, um, vested interests who are really keen to keep the status quo, a population that isn't ready to understand that we need them to push hard if we're going to make um, something happen. So you, to sustain that work, you really do need uh, your relationships and your friendship.
0: Louise, I know you still work with, you know, younger up-and-coming climate activists. From What is like the one tip to keep them motivated that you can give them not getting bogged down in that back and forth you talk about from, you know, a couple steps forward, a couple steps back when it comes to the climate work?
8: Yeah, I'd say maybe two things. One is be careful with your grief. Um, a lot of what we, you know, share in, in terms of our angst and what we project to the world stems from our deep, deep grief. And not that we shouldn't acknowledge that and be present to it. But if it's only through the grief, um, while we need to grieve, I believe strongly we do. But if it's only the grief, then um, it's hard to bring people along. And then the other I'm really very concerned right now about in the solutions conversation, uh, we are falling for the very growth paradigm that got us into trouble in the first place. Um, And I think we need to think hard about the the limitations of green environmentalism and and technology and remember that this is a social issue just as much as it is a technology issue and an economic issue and that we need to change the way we think in order for us to uh, solve uh, these challenges
0: that we face. Well, Paul, thank you so much for nominating Luis. It's so lovely to not only hear about the amazing accomplishments and the work that both of you have done, but it's that connection, I think, that is so interesting because often you don't, we don't hear those stories about how that works and and what people can bring to, to everyone else's life uh, in that hard work. So thank you so much, Paul and Louise. You're welcome.
7: Thank you. You're welcome. Yeah, thank you. So now you can see why... I nominated her
0: absolutely it all <laughs> makes sense I don't <laughs> don't even need to read the nomination letter I, I'm going to nominate her now <laughs> But we still want to hear your nominations about your climate heroes, the people in your community making a difference for the planet. Send us an email about who you're nominating and why, and we might just feature them on the show. The email is earth at cbc.ca. That's also how to reach us about anything you hear on the program.
3: Paper or plastic?
6: Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um,
3: plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're
0: busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better. Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. You're listening to What on Earth? I'm Renee Filippone. Coming up,
9: I didn't see no storm clouds or nothing, and it's just a dark cloud button that like straight above me, and uh, it just started getting uh, windy.
0: Canada has a big problem when it comes to tornadoes and warnings. We're going to meet the researchers working to fix that, as climate change might make them even more unpredictable. But first, producer Rachel Sanders has appeared with me in studio. Hello. Hi, Renee. Yeah, I'm here to dive
5: into the What on Earth inbox, and we've had a lot of response to two very different stories from last week's show. Yeah, I know. You worked on on the story about Emily Kelsall. That's right. Emily is the 25-year-old who went to jail because of her climate protests. She also ended up in hospital, partly because of her overwhelming climate anxiety. So our first email response to that story comes from Noriko Hushino, and here's part of what she wrote. First of all, I'm glad she's feeling better. The environmental issues weigh a lot more on younger people. They have decades to live. They don't have money or power, which tends to make them feel more frustrated. Activism often bumps into a thick wall: lack of political will. Even though some of her actions were misguided, I don't think she was the one who should be punished. Justice system isn't just. There are tons of others who belong in purgatory. Mega emitters and do-nothing politicians are making the situation worse, but they are thriving. Thanks for that email, Noriko. And
0: Rachel, you do have another on this interview.
5: That's right. This one comes from Janice Berger. The young woman on your program learned that staying with her feelings is how to get through them. It was so good to hear that spoken so clearly and definitely, as well as everything else she and your other guests had to say. As a psychotherapist for many years, I taught clients that what we do with our feelings is crucial to our mental and physical well-being. Unfortunately, many of us learn to be afraid of feelings, suppress them in various detrimental ways, and pass this on to our kids. The pandemic and the climate crisis have made it abundantly clear that all our kids need to know it's okay not to be okay and that their feelings are appropriate to the situation and should not be pathologized.
0: Uh, Thanks, Janice, for your perspective as as a psychotherapist, which it's great to hear from on the program. Mm. And Rachel, we also heard some reaction to this fascinating story about traveling on cargo ships as an alternative to airplanes. This is something I never thought about before. Yeah, and
5: we wondered if any listeners had done it. And boy, do they have stories to tell. Here's one of those emails that we got. Pauline Ciaffoni took a Norwegian freighter from Montreal in 1964, and it's quite the yarn, Renee, so I'll just read a few bits of this email. (laughs) Off the coast of Canada, the captain stopped the ship, and all officers and crew went fishing for cod. We ate cod for four days, and only the Norwegians can cook wonderful fish dishes. There was no bar, but a room full of alcohol at our disposal. I mean, that sounds like a party right there. (laughs) Then we went to Puerto Rico and stayed two nights. Officers and stewardesses and us passengers went to a nightclub one night and then took a taxi to a beach the next day with the captain included. We had the taxi driver promise to pick us up at four as the ship left at five. Of course, he didn't show up, so we had to hitchhike. Back to a ship. That's right. There we go.
0: Another night of partying, it sounds.
5: We were about a day or two out of Puerto Rico when we came upon the edge of a hurricane. Oh, no. Being a smaller ship and no stabilizers, we were really rocking and rolling. <sighs> yes, I got seasick, and yes, it was very uncomfortable, but it was only for a day.
0: Yeah, no, that still sounds horrible. No, a yep.
5: whole day of being seasick? Yep. Yeah. no, thanks. <laughs> the captain showed us the wheelhouse and had us steering. So that's a nice that experience. That sounds also safe. Yeah. 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 On- <laughs> On the top deck, we socialized with the stewardesses. Richard and I were invited to the captain's quarters for drinks before dinner, and we had a lot of laughs. And then at dinner, everything became formal. When we arrived in Barbados, the chief steward knew the ship Chandler, whose daughter had a beauty salon. And to make a happy ending, I got the job and stayed for a year. No, there were no amenities like now, but it was the camaraderie that made the trip delightful.
0: I'm still not sure I'm convinced about taking a cargo ship, especially with the whole seasickness thing. But thank you, Rachel. And thanks to everyone who wrote in. Our email address is earth at (music) cbc.ca. Tornado season arrived with force this year. In the U.S., it's been deadly, with a supercell killing 26 people in Mississippi in March Then a week later, a tornado outbreak swept across the Midwest, killing more than 30. Ontario recorded its first touchdown this June, with Manitoba reporting three. So is there a link between tornadoes and climate change? Researchers say they just simply don't know yet. But they are seeing changes. And here in Canada, some scientists say these shifts, along with a growing population, could make people and property more vulnerable that's why they believe the country needs to do a better job of warning canadians about the risks and telling them how to prepare here's Joan weber with the cbc's audio documentary unit with the story we first aired in october 2022
1: on an early august evening in 2020 james blacksmith was traveling along highway 83 which cuts north south across manitoba
9: I was traveling on the highway and I didn't see no storm clouds or nothing and it's just a dark cloud, but it, it's it, like straight above me. And, uh, it just it started getting uh, windy.
1: Then something hit his Jeep and he worried it was hail. So James pulled off the road and onto a farm not far from the town of Verdon.
9: I pulled in under under the, uh, those big pine trees, the big roll of pine trees I pulled under. And there was a white truck that pulled up beside me.
1: He could see two people inside figured they were doing exactly as he was, trying to take cover. I thought
9: I'd be safe pulling into that farmyard and parking under the trees, but that, that was the worst thing to do, I guess.
1: James remembers the white truck being there only for a moment before it suddenly began backing up.
9: Right after that, that truck disappeared on my sight, uh, when I looked forward, I seen it looked like the ground was like, like curling up towards me like a wave. And... It just happened so fast. I pulled right into the tornado, I guess. I didn't know.
1: Seven minutes earlier, a tornado warning had gone out, an alert from Environment and Climate Change Canada. But James never got the warning.
10: Approximately 7.40 p.m. Central Time, we noticed big updrafts fire here. They were merging into-
1: Nearby were merging though, the- storm chasers had been tracking and filming a menacing-looking cloud formation. The footage is somewhat surreal. Storm chaser Aaron Jajak has captured a sun-streaked blue sky, the backdrop to this ominous-looking dark funnel cloud that touches down. You can see it churning up the earth and hurling debris as it approaches the farm where James and the white truck had pulled in. In his film, The Most Remarkable Tornado in Canadian History, Jay Jack manages to film himself as this monstrous twister looms behind him just across a field.
9: My windows blew out. All oh, the dust and whatever blowing through my Jeep. But it sounded like a, a train was coming by or something. It, it just, it loud. I laid down in my Jeep. I just couldn't remember praying to me to my parents who, uh, who are are passed away, uh, to help me. I remember that I thought I was going to die. And I, I I remember getting tossed and tumbled. And when I came to a stop, everything, uh, came to a quiet calm. And, but I started feeling pain in my, in my, uh, my back. And my legs were going numb because I was, uh, Hanging upside down, I guess, and pinned, and I, I, couldn't, I couldn't move my legs. I heard somebody yelling, and I died, I heard. So I started yelling back and honking my horn, and maybe that's when they found me.
5: We begin tonight with some breaking news out of the Verdun area. A tornado touched down tonight near Scarth. Witnesses say two vehicles were thrown from the highway, and the twister also hit a farmyard. Emergency officials weren't able to confirm tonight the extent of any injuries. We'll continue to update this breaking news
9: story. Well, they said I'd broken my neck. I had some cracked vertebrae and they just put my neck in a brace. And uh, after, after a week, I think, I was able to walk.
1: But he kept worrying about the two people who had been in that white truck.
9: When, when I was in the hospital, I asked how they were doing and I didn't get no reply and After a while, I think that's when they said that uh, they never made it through the tornado.
10: From CBC News, The World This Hour, I'm Kaz Bovin. Two deaths, a man and a woman, were killed when they were thrown from their vehicle by the twister. At least one other person was injured. Carter Tilbury and Shayna Barneski were both 18 years old and recent high school graduates.
1: Such fatalities from a tornado in this country are rare, but they do happen. Lots of people will remember the massive tornado that hit Edmonton one Friday afternoon more than three decades ago. Memorable because it hit such a big city and because it killed 27 people. Hundreds more were injured, homes were destroyed, and the damages were huge in the hundreds of millions. It was the second deadliest twister in Canadian history. The one that caused even more fatalities, at least 28, happened in 1912 in Regina. And just this past May, 11 people died in a massive storm in Ontario and Quebec. It was called a derecho, which included four twisters. But the thing is, most tornadoes in Canada hit rural, unpopulated areas, sometimes just in the middle of nowhere. So in the past, many of those have gone undetected.
6: So we set out to try to to get a real sense of what's happening across the country as far as tornado occurrence and and the characteristics of tornadoes, regardless of if it's in a populated area or not, and what does that mean for tornado risk.
1: This is David Sills. He used to work for Environment Canada for decades as a severe weather scientist. In 2017, he and Greg Cobb, a professor of civil and environmental engineering at Western, formed the Northern Tornadoes Project at Western University. Since then, their goal has been to get a better understanding of the true nature of tornado activity across the country by trying to identify every single twister in Canada.
10: Part of what we want to do over the longer term is be able to document any possible changes to tornadoes, when they occur, the number of them, where they occur spatially, what time of year that they're happening. We try to capture all of that information.
1: Some of what they're trying to determine is what impact climate change may be having on tornado activity.
6: The climate change influences aren't as simple as more storms, more tornadoes. It's more how are Changes happening on a, on a regional level and seasonal, maybe even time of day. We haven't looked at that part yet. But there there are changes happening. They're just not the ch- kind of changes that we thought might be happening h- at this point.
1: Whether this is climate change related, they don't know yet.
6: So the, f- the first step is to find these trends. The second step is to say, OK, what's causing these trends? What we did find for Southern Ontario is a statistical uh, pattern of tornadoes occurring later in the year.
1: He's talking about powerful twisters rated EF2 and higher, which means winds over 180 kilometers per hour.
6: So instead of having a maximum uh, in the early summer, it's now a maximum in the late summer. And we have noticed that uh, one of the reasons we investigated that is because anecdotally, uh, forecasters are saying, how come we're getting all our all of our big tornadoes later in the year lately It seems like in the last decade or so it's you know it's there's just been a shift so you know great great uh, thing to look at with a data set that we have and sure enough, there was this uh, statistically significant trend towards significant tornadoes occurring later in the year
1: even into September
6: and that has some implications uh, as you go later in the year it gets darker earlier. Um, so, there may be more tornadoes uh, occurring at dusk or, or in the dark. Uh, schools are in rather than uh, having the students out and being able to see tornadoes as they come. So, there are some safety implications for a ch- just a change like that, just a seasonal change. Uh, in the U.S., they're finding that the, um, the traditional tornado alley that goes through the Great Plains is just starting to, to shift eastward into more populated areas. And if that shift continues, that's going to have big implications as well.
1: The scientists caution that if the tornado season were to expand, the risk to Canadians would obviously increase. And already, Sill says, lots of people are unaware of the threat Twister's pose in this country.
6: Everybody sees what happens in the U.S. and thinks, well, that doesn't happen here. <laughs> but in, in our peak months, you know, between you know June and August, Anything that happens in the U.S. is possible here. It wasn't that long ago that people in Quebec would tell us, oh, we don't get big tornadoes in Quebec. They're not saying that anymore. (laughs) They've had a number of big outbreaks that we found now. They've had EF3 tornadoes, and they are in a tornado-prone area where they can get up to EF5 tornadoes. So I think that there's been a real shift in awareness, particularly in, in that region because of the work that we've done that, hey, you know, Southern Quebec and is, is tornado prone. And uh, you have to consider that when you, when you do things like build or, or, you know, municipal risk assessments and these kinds of things. And the other thing that's happening is our population is
10: growing and we're spreading out and covering more of the land. And so there's gonna be more impacts just because of population growth and expansion of our suburban areas.
1: It's why Greg Kopp and David Sills say way more work has to go into warning Canadians about tornado risks and better protecting them. They did their first ever report card to assess how well Environment and Climate Change Canada is doing when it comes to warnings.
10: According to recent data from the Northern Tornadoes Project out of Western University, Environment and Climate Change Canada's warnings are falling behind its own targets.
6: We found they hadn't been doing very well over the last three years. Uh, About 70% of tornadoes had no tornado warning on them. And that included um, most of the EF2 tornadoes that we have in our database didn't have a tornado warning on them. So these are the significant tornadoes. Uh, I mean, a lot of them were occurring in forests, but some fatalities that are on record are when a tornado hits a a fishing camp in a forest. So, you know, it's not like if it hits a forest, nothing is going to happen. There are lots of people in the forest doing certain activities in the summertime. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's definitely, um, uh, you know, the performance could use improvement.
1: At the time, Environment and Climate Change Canada responded, saying it had made progress.
10: Environment Canada says the agency is always improving, with ongoing upgrades to all 33 of its radar sites and plans for more precise tornado warning polygons.
1: Sils points out that Canada has a fraction of the radars used in the US and comparatively few forecasters, something Environment Canada called an unfair comparison.
10: Joanne Sancour says some tornadoes aren't clearly visible on radar and Canada's sparse population makes eyewitness reports difficult.
7: You have to consider the population base, The the environment. There's a lot more. Um, we're a country more prone to severe weather during the winter than we are in
1: in the summer months. But still suggests there's more to it.
6: There seems to be a lot of concern that overwarning will result in in people not paying attention to warnings in the future. So they they tend to hold back and and only warn when uh, when it's very obvious. But by that time, the tornado is usually. In progress and uh, sometimes it's already over by the time the warning comes out which has been the case in some of our higher profile events so you know we're we're trying to come up with uh, with some some ways that those scores can be improved through forecaster actions we're also working on developing algorithms that will help a forecaster recognize a potential tornado before it starts causing damage
1: Greg Kopp acknowledges there have been some improvements
10: the the big development really is that warnings go to cell phones and um, and so that's that I think is a, a tremendously positive development uh, you know everyone having a, a warning in their pocket if you will is is a good thing
1: something that might have helped James blacksmith the man who drove right into the path of that Manitoba tornado but he's not convinced
9: I think it, it could have helped but like I said, I was already traveling on the highway. and What am I going to do when I get that warning? Where am I going to go? I don't know what's happening.
1: Now, if you're thinking it's remarkable that James Blacksmith should survive a tornado, you might be amazed to learn he lived through another twister a few years prior at his home in Sioux Valley First Nation, Manitoba. And his experience highlights an issue both scientists are concerned about.
9: Me and my common-law wife were... Uh, she was uh, hiding in the in the bathroom, and I was just trying to look out the window, but the, the rain was so thick, I couldn't see out the window. After it was over, uh, my brother came by and he said, your roof is gone. I had to open the bedroom door because all the roof, everything was collapsed and, and uh, all the rain, everything that, I don't know, the, the, the weight of the, all the water, I guess it uh, collapsed my ceiling in that one bedroom. It was just a big messenger.
1: It's damage like this that frustrates the scientists at the Northern Tornadoes Project, because they say there are ways of guarding against this kind of destruction. Here's Greg Kopp.
10: Over the last uh, 10, 15 years, we've done quite a lot of work on how houses perform under severe winds. And we've discovered that the weakest link in the structure is actually the roof being fastened to the walls.
1: In this experiment posted to YouTube, Kopp is working in a lab with one of his students, and they're using a wind tunnel to see the impacts of winds on miniature houses built to scale, and they're observing where they fail.
10: Oh, we had our first failure.
1: The roofs can only hang on for so long before several are ripped away by the wind. wind. In real twisters, not only is this phenomenally costly damage, it can be deadly.
10: When the roof comes off of the wall, um, the walls can collapse and fall on people. And so that is an immediate threat. And then that roof that's failed, it can fly downwind and hit neighboring structures, which is again a threat. And, and windborne debris is a big issue in tornadoes. Um, things like, um, like two by fours flying through the wind travel at almost the speed of the wind. So if you have 200 kilometers an hour, that's a that's a spear moving pretty fast.
1: Cop and Sill say there's a simple fix.
10: They're called hurricane straps.
1: Or they call them roof tie-downs.
10: And they're just simple little pieces of metal that you nail into the roof truss and nail into the wall studs. Um, and it fastens the two. And that, that little piece of metal is strong enough to hold the roof to the walls in a, in a tornado up to EF2.
1: In talks he's given... He describes them this way.
10: It's like a seatbelt for your roof, okay? None of us would get in a car these days and not put a seatbelt on. This is the seatbelt for our for our houses, if you will.
1: Nails are important. But despite having lobbied the government for years to get the straps included in the National Building Code of Canada, it hasn't happened. And as an engineer, Kopp finds this unacceptable. He says twisters from decades ago prompted other very important changes to the code, but he believes this change would be equally vital.
10: There was um, some really major tornadoes in the 1980s, I like the Barry tornado, the Edmonton tornado, but even before that, it was uh, the Blue Sea Lake, was that the, I think that's that, it, that yeah. was the name of it? And a cottage, a cottage was lifted um, off the ground by a tornado thrown in the lake and the person in the cottage drowned, so they died by drowning. And the issue was the cottage wasn't fastened to the ground, so it had no connection, no foundation connection. And so the recommendation that came out of that was to make sure buildings have proper foundations, that they're bolted down, and also then that the roof was fastened through to the walls. And the National Building Code of Canada implemented the wall foundation uh, requirements, but never the roof-to-wall one. And so that hasn't been there, even though we've known for 40 years that this was a significant life safety issue.
1: The argument he hears against the straps is that they're too costly. But to his mind, they're relatively inexpensive, a couple of hundred dollars per house, and possibly invaluable. He points to the EF2 tornado that hit Barrie, Ontario in 2021. It caused about $100 million in insured damage.
10: The people in Barrie that lost their houses, we were there on the anniversary and there were still 15 to 20 houses that weren't occupied. Um, And those are people that are out of their home and having a hard time finding rental. Their insurance is running out and there's all sorts of things going on. So we think let's just solve this problem with a simple solution, which is put these things in.
1: According to a statement from the Canadian Commission on Building and Fire Codes, the 2020 National Building Code of Canada does require the installation of hurricane straps for houses and small buildings in specific locations in Canada based on higher wind loads. When asked to clarify which specific locations, I was given the names of seven communities, places like Pinter Creek, Alberta, and Resolution Island in Nunavut. As this covers roughly 10,000 people, COP says this is effectively meaningless. The statement from the Canadian Commission on Building and Fire Codes also pointed out that climate change adaptation has been identified as a policy area for attention for the 2025 and 2030 editions of the National Building Code. COP says that hospitals and schools also need to be designed with tornadoes in mind, but currently in Canada, they're not.
10: In Moore, Oklahoma, after they, it was the third major tornado they had in 15 years, and um, what moved the community to actually um, develop um, tornado, uh, a tornado-based building code, was uh, a number of school children were killed when when the school was directly hit, and so I think it's something that we need to be talking about and ensuring that these buildings are safe.
1: Determining what role climate change might be having on the nature of tornadoes remains a challenge and an area of study for COP and SILS. But both are dedicated to getting Canada to better prepare for such events. Something SILS says that the 2018 tornado outbreak in the Ottawa region really illustrated.
6: When we went to do the damage survey, we got out of the airport and none of the traffic lights were working. Our cell phones weren't working. It was basically shut down. <laughs> and it was pretty much the same thing when the derecho went through that, you know, their their power grid was off for, for some people for, for 10 days in the city and outside the city even longer. Uh, so there are a lot of vulnerabilities that are exposed by these kinds of events. So that, for me, that was a big one as far as uh, just, just showing, you know, the potential. Also, that it occurred so late in the year, September 21st, it was the latest outbreak of that kind in, in our, on record in Canada. So it just kind of revealed a lot of vulnerabilities and, and maybe some changes that we can expect, you know, late, late occurring big events. And uh, that event was, for me, uh, something that was pretty eye-opening. And as far as impacts on people, uh, you know, we do pay attention to say, say the Barry event, that, which was an EF2 tornado. So it was kind of middle of the, of the scale. Um, but yeah, people are complaining about you know, PTSD type uh, impacts on their mental health. We have a colleague who's studying this, these kinds of things just to try to get a better idea of what the long-term uh, social impacts are of these kinds of events.
9: I get, I get pretty scared when I see storm clouds coming. Sometimes we, we get uh, uh, some kind of warning on our TV when, when there's a severe weather storm coming. But uh, I, I don't know. I guess that's what really scares me when, when I hear that alert on TV.
1: James Blacksmith still feels vulnerable, and he worries that many houses in his community don't have basements to shelter in. He also continues to have pain from the injuries he suffered in that tornado. But mostly, he thinks a lot about those teenagers who were killed.
9: I felt very bad uh, knowing that a couple of young young people had uh, lost their lives. And I'm here, I am uh, almost 60 years old. And uh, I think I should have lost my life and let them live, but I don't know.
0: That documentary first aired in October. It was produced by Joan Weber with help from Julia Poggle. They are with CBC's Audio Documentary Unit. Additional audio was from the Boundary Layer Wind Tunnel Laboratory at Western University and from a TEDx event also at Western. Now, we circled back to David Sills from the Northern Tornadoes Project for an update. Since last fall, they've issued the government a fresh report card on tornado warnings. David says things are cautiously looking up
6: in fact, the total score for the, the new report card in 2022 was a passing grade. I mean, it was a D, but it was still a passing grade and really quite an improvement from the initial report card.
0: David says that improvement is linked to a recommendation from their first report card to increase the number of tornado warnings issued by the government. That's all for this week. The show was put together by producers Rachel Sanders and Matt Muse, and associate producers Danielle Piper and Zoe Yunker. Matthias Wolfson is our engineer. Catherine Wolfson is our senior producer. I'm Renee Filippone, in for Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening.
1: For more CBC Podcasts,
3: go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.